Our scripture reading in our text is from the book of Acts still. We're going through the studies of the early church. Chapter 7, verse 58. We have two main characters in our story. The first one is Stephen, and then a young man by the name of Saul. Verse 58. Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Then chapter 9. And Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. What makes a person a candidate for conversion to Christ? Notice I said conversion to Christ, not to Christianity. What makes a person a candidate? Must they be informed? Must they be a person of immense knowledge that can understand the intricacies of the Christian faith and the mysteries that are taught therein, especially the mystery of how God came in the flesh in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who is totally divine and totally human. 
does immense knowledge, encyclopedic understanding bring one to a place of conversion? If so, Paul would have been there with the first of them. The seriousness about spiritual things, being spiritual and sincere in your faith, make you a believer in Jesus Christ or make you a Christian or make you saved from your eternal condemnation? If so, young Saul would have already been there. For he was a Pharisee, the strictest of all the sects of Judaism. He had been trained in Jerusalem as a young man under Gamaliel, not only a very knowledgeable rabbi, but a premier rabbi, but a rabbi with some executive leadership and immense wisdom. We've already seen Gamaliel back in chapter 5 when he told the council looking at Peter and John and said, we've seen guys like this before. And if what they're doing, this preaching about Jesus Christ and him being alive from the dead, if it has anything to it, if it's of, of man, it'll fail. But if it's of God, we can't stop it. That was Gamaliel, Paul's, or Saul at this point's teacher. If having great zeal for your faith will cause you to become a believer or be instead of a believer. Saul was already there. We'll see in the text here in this story that I don't think anybody was more zealous of their faith, the defense of their faith, the propagation of their faith than was young Saul. Being sincere being informed, being zealous will not bring you to Christ. What brings you to Christ is when you see a light and hear a voice. And this is what happened to young Saul. Now the story here is quite intriguing and I, I love the story and there's a whole lot more to it than what we read and I think that Mark told me, I hope I heard this right, it may have been wishful thinking on my part, but I think I heard Mark say we're going to deal with a little more of, of uh, Saul's conversion here in uh, next week as well. So maybe we don't have to tell the whole story today. But the story goes all the way back to a man named Stephen. Stephen, you remember, was one of seven Greek-speaking Jews who lived in Jerusalem and he was appointed by the early church, along with six other men that were full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, to be the first, what we know as deacons, men who took care of the ministry of the tables, the ministry of the widows, to make sure there was an equitable distribution between the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem, the widows of that group, and the native Jerusalemites that spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. There had been an inequity in the church or perceived inequity and these deacons solved that problem and they went on. We've seen one of them. Philip went on to become an evangelist. We saw him dealing with a conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch down in uh, Gaza. Philip was a deacon turned evangelist. 
Stephen was one of those deacons and he was an outstanding preacher, proclaimer, but more importantly, he followed strict argumentation, no doubt influenced greatly by that incredible literary um, capital of the world, Alexandria, Egypt. Stephen had been trained in the Greek language in Hellenistic ways, but he was also thoroughly informed in the scriptures. And Stephen would preach in the synagogues, and in so doing, he would tell the story. We have an example of it here. This whole first part of the, uh, the seventh chapter is a long sermon by Stephen in which he lays out holy, redemptive history, how that God called Abraham and he called his people and through Moses he led them and through the prophets and the kings and eventually he brought them the Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Savior came and the Savior died and rose again. And Stephen is preaching this material, but he's doing it out of the Old Testament scriptures. And two things always happen when a preacher back in those days did that. His audience was Jewish. His audience would hear that and some would believe it. They would say, that's it. That's what David was talking about. That's who Moses was talking about. That's who the Psalms are all about. That's about whom Isaiah spoke. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Messiah. We can see it now. There how he was to suffer and he was to die and he was to be humiliated and he was to lay down his life and the people were to condemn him and the sins of the people were to be placed upon him and he was to die a bloody atoning death for their sins and he would go into his grave and then God would honor him by raising him up because he had lived a perfectly obedient life and he bestowed upon him the blessing of eternal life. Marvelous story. And some would hear it and they would believe it and they were converted. They would seize upon the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. And they would see how it applied to them that surely he hath borne our sorrows. Our iniquity was laid upon him. He was raised for our justification, our acquittal. We're no longer condemned. The work that Jesus did takes care of us. All of the lamentation and the repentance of the Old Testament had been fulfilled in Christ and we now partake of that and it was good news, it was gospel and they believed it and they saw themselves as thorough, complete, absolute, fulfilled Jews, the true seed of Abraham, born again into God's kingdom by the Christ himself. Then there was a group that nothing in the world made them angrier. Their blood would boil every minute that the sermon progressed. What blasphemy to claim that this crucified carpenter was the son of God. What distortion of scripture to take those passages out of context and rest them. What a repulsive, what an offense, what a stumbling block. What a disgusting, repulsive thing to hear that we believe in one God and now you're telling us there's a man who is God. And the Jews, the good old orthodox, strong, well-informed Jews would be loath to hear one word of the gospel. So what had happened is Stephen had finally gotten in trouble for this kind of preaching. Serious trouble. And I'm going to submit that 
He was unjustly stoned, but there's a line of reasoning that says it could have well been a legal execution because there was an interregum period there between the Roman authorities, and in that period of time, the Sanhedrin, that is the council of the Jewish government there in Jerusalem, had supreme authority, including the authority of the death penalty. And it was they who had given him the, uh, the condemnation sentence. And the Bible says here, they cast him out of the city and stoned him, which was precisely what the Old Testament law said you were supposed to do to a blasphemer. And if Stephen, in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, had blasphemed the God of Israel, he deserves death by stoning. And so they took him out to stone him. Now there are a lot of details of this stoning that, that uh, is, uh, I think, interesting. One is that it had to be outside the city. Another one, there had to be a stoning place or a stoning pit. And it was two heights of a man, we'll say 12, 11 or 12 feet. It had to be down either a staircase or a ravine or a pit. They had to put him down that far beneath. And as he got, as he would lead the person out to be stoned, the people that would lead him, one on each arm, was the first and the second witness. A person is not condemned except by the mouth of two witnesses or more. So these witnesses would, would escort the condemned out to the place of stoning. And when they got to, without, with 10 cubits of the place of stoning, maybe about 30 feet, maybe about 10 yards on a football field, when they got about that distance, they would call upon the condemned to repent and confess and recant. And if he didn't, then they would move him forward to about two or three cubits and they would strip him. Not only that, the witnesses would take off their cloak so their arms would be free to throw stones. And then the witnesses behind, if there were more witnesses or those that had been part of the condemnation would be lined up to cast their stones. And then they would bring him to the precipice of the stoning place and they would, the first witness would push him over and he would fall that far, 11, 12 feet down. And when he got there, they would quickly check to see if he had died of his fall. If he had died of the fall, that was the end of the stoning. But if he was still alive, they would roll him over on his back and the first, the, the second witness would take a stone and would throw it straight as hard as he could right to his chest area toward his heart. One good strong stone throw. I had to kill a rattlesnake on my ranch back in uh, last year, early in the year. And there's, you haven't come, you haven't had any fun at all until you've confronted a rattlesnake. I'm telling you what, I was out chopping around on some bushes and I heard that rattle and I looked up and there he was about four feet long, about that big around. <laughs> and that, that head and those, that, that rattle, I'm telling you, it was loud. I think I'd hear it a country mile. And it was <laughs> that head up like that. And if I'd had any sense at all how to run, <laughs> I would have completely run away from that place, but I didn't. I said, this is interesting, a rattlesnake. And I didn't have any idea at the time that they can just coil up and leap about 10 feet or more. And I was about four feet back. And um, 
I had quite an encounter with that snake. But what I finally did, the first blow, I ended up shooting him, cutting off his head, cutting off his tail, and everything you can think of. Took a lot of pictures of him. But my first blow was, I reached around behind me and picked up a big chunk of concrete that we'd used to prop open the gate. And I waited quietly until the rattlesnake sort of settled down and started to slither off into the grass. And then I stepped up behind him with that stone, with that big piece of concrete and just tried to hit him right in the middle of his body as hard as I could. And I made a good strike, wham. Well, that should do it, shouldn't it? <laughs> Not a rattlesnake. I mean, you could see him buckle up and coil and you could tell I'd hurt him. I could see that I'd put a good wound in him, but he was able to coil again and brace. And I ended up hitting him with the rock, hitting him with a stick, shooting him with my 380, uh, which for a long time I forgot I even had it. I should have pulled that out at the very beginning, but I forgot I had it. And then ended up uh, getting him in a position where I could uh, chop his head off. Well, one good blow. I remember as I was dropping that rock upon that snake, I thought, this better, this better work. It better be right on, right on there. And I've never given it such a coil and pulled in and did everything I knew to get my, as much power and force as I could into that stone coming down because I wanted that one blow to do it, to completely disable the snake. And I can imagine the kind of anger because in every one of these stoning instances, when, when, when you hear about uh, Paul, when he was taken out to being stoned, when he was at Antioch Presidia uh, on his way there in an earlier missionary journey, when we find out about uh, uh, Paul uh, being uh, stoned, we see this case here. When Paul tells the story about this later on, something that always shows up is the venom, the venom and the anger and the, the, the absolute insane, blinding wrath in the minds of the stoners. These people feel that they're not only doing the right thing, but they're doing God a favor. And so I can see that stoneman come down hard as he possibly could upon the chest. And then if that blow to the midsection of the chest doesn't disable or kill the poor victim, then the martyr is stoned by everybody. They just start pulling the stones in there. Remember Jesus one time with the woman taken in adultery, he looked at the guys and he said, let the one that's without sin cast the first stone. The first stone thrower is the one that's really got the zeal, the one that was the witness and the one that is ready to do the execution. And that's what you, Stephen, had. This was the first martyr in the Christian faith. And he, Stephen, was the victim of immense hatred but it was zeal. These people didn't think they were committing a criminal act. They didn't think they were committing an act of evil. In fact, they were defending the good name of the one true God, the God of Abraham. I don't think Paul, the Bible says here in the text that later on, Paul will tell this story three and a half more times in the latter part of the book of Acts. He will tell the story of his conversion and and the stoning of Stephen and the persecuting of the church and all. What we saw here was the first martyr, the first person to die. Peter and John at first had escaped their 
their punishments, you remember. And the, the, the preachers of the gospel had been let off with a warning and they had been uh, ostracized and they had suffered some, but not to death. Stephen was the first one to die for the faith. And standing on the scene right there was this young man, Saul. And I think there's two things that Saul never got over. The first one, I know for sure because the text says it. <laughs> he never got over the fact that he was in favor of the execution. He says he approved it. He witnessed it. And what's more, he held the coats of the stoners as they had taken off their top coats and their robes in order to be able to get a good swing on the stone. Paul was complicit and approving of this execution. The second thing, and I can't prove this in Scripture, but if we want to argue about it, I think I can make my case. I think Paul never got over Stephen's sermons. I think they were convincing. I think Paul listened to soul Stephen preach enough and heard him talk about the Old Testament and about God's working with his people through hundreds of years of history and bringing them finally to the salvation that was the long expected Jesus. I think, I think Paul, something inside of him started agitating him that there's maybe some truth to this. This might be the truth. This Jesus might indeed be the Messiah. He might indeed be the Son of God. He might indeed be the Savior of the world. And his whole cold, stony heart resisted it with everything he had emotionally. And one of the reasons I think, the main reason I think that Paul never got over Stephen's sermon is that if you'll listen to some of Paul's early sermons, he preached, he, he preached Stephen's sermon at the, at the synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia. It's, he does what Stephen did. He learned to preach from Stephen. But here, he never got over it. And it says that as he witnessed this death. Uh, Stephen did two remarkable things that's worth mentioning. One is he, he said to, as he was uh, dying, and he said, Lord, receive my spirit. This was a prayer, similar to the prayer Jesus prayed on the cross when he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Or my, he said to the Father. Now Stephen is calling upon the Lord to receive him receive his spirit. And then he also, as our Lord had done, and uh, there's some dispute about the uh, reliability of the text on this particular quote of Christ, but it's well known that Jesus asked the Father to forgive them for they didn't know what they were doing. And Stephen had, had um, said something similar. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And before he had spoken these words and died, Stephen had had a glimpse of a heavenly vision, a heavenly throne room. And there was a, a vision, a glimpse of Jesus, not seated at the right hand of the throne, but standing at the right hand of the throne as though to welcome Stephen in. Incredible, incredible reception for the first martyr, the first one to die for the name of Jesus. But that didn't end it. In fact, that started, and as I conclude this morning, I'll just tell you, that started an incredible 
round of persecution. It was so severe that the saints were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. Everyone except the apostles, they, they managed to stay close. And then this young man, Saul, who had witnessed, approved of, and was complicit in the execution of Stephen, was ravaging the church. And notice what he was doing, entering house after house. I'm not sure he had to have a warrant, but if he needed one, he got one, and I think he had one. I think he had, the, the chief priest gave him a warrant for that. They gave him a warrant to go to Damascus, to do the same thing in Damascus that he was doing right there in Jerusalem, to go house to house, dragging off men and women. How hostile, how angry, how zealous, how compulsive must you be to drag off the women. In Israel, they had always reckoned the authority with the men. The men were the responsible one. It was the men who had to bear the burden of religious decision-making and religious life in Israel. But Saul is dragging out the women. I think that's because even then Saul could see that women were just as important to the Christian church as the men. Just as much committed, just as vital, just as much redeemed. Just, there, was no, there was no inequality. There was no male or female when it came to Christians. They all had to be dragged out and committed them to prison. Not so they could be locked up for a few days, but so they could reach the same fate as Stephen. Now they're going to prison in order to have a trial, in order to be executed for the name of Jesus. What changed all that? Well, you, we read the story, and hopefully we'll look at it again a little bit in more detail next week. What changed all that was as Saul was on his way with his official documents from the council to prosecute his persecution all the way beyond the region of Palestine, Judea and Samaria, all the way over into Syria, to Damascus, the ancient city of Damascus, where some of the believers apparently had fled and some had migrated. He was going to get them from there too and bring them back to Jerusalem bound, as the text says. And as he was on his way, he had an experience. We'll talk a little bit more about that experience next time. But there were two important things in that experience. He saw a light, a blinding light. Now those around him saw the flash, but they didn't see what Paul saw in the light. What Paul saw in the light was Jesus Christ. He saw the risen Lord. He, he made claim that he was an apostle born out of due season. Later on in life, he would, he would say that, but I have seen the risen Lord. And the second thing that happened is he heard the voice. The people around heard a voice, but they didn't see anyone. But Paul heard the voice of the Lord, and he had a conversation with the Lord. And it was a conversation of, of loving rebuke. The Lord said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It wasn't just that he was persecuting Christians. He was persecuting Christ himself. 
The body of Christ is so inextricably bound among themselves and in Christ and bound to Him through a wonderful union that to persecute the Christian was to persecute Christ. Christ confronted him that day, appeared to him that day, spoke to him that day. And Paul's life was never the same. Never the same.